Good evening and welcome to From the Frontline. Tonight we're going to be discussing resistance to abortion and harassment from the state. I'm Hunter Combs in the studio with Dr. Peter Hammond. We're discussing the legalization of abortion over the last 25 years and how over 2 million babies have been killed in South Africa by abortion, mostly by taxpayers' dollars. And we recently just had a March for Life to Parliament. And so we're here to discuss this and discuss the resistance we've been experiencing to this issue. Dr. Hammond, good to have you with us. Thank you. Well, it's a scandalous situation, and uh, we have been making a stand for years. In fact, long before abortion was legalized in South Africa, uh, Africa Christian Action was launched because we could see the writing on the wall that the South African government was moving in the direction of what they called liberalizing abortion laws. Because in the yeah. old South Africa, abortion was illegal, and the pro-choices were having campaigns, and we could see uh, what they were demanding. They didn't get much support on the ground. They've never tried to have a demonstration because mm. they couldn't get anyone there. But they did have the ear of a lot of key politicians and the New World Order and all of that. Mm. So uh, Nelson Mandela in particular took their, their case. And so Africa Christian Action was formed already in January, uh, February 1991. And so for 30 years, we've been standing for life and liberty and for the faith and the family and our future by standing for the right to life of pre-born babies and opposing abortion, standing up for the family, opposing pornography, perversion, working for a better future by seeking to apply the Lordship of Christ to all areas of life. And we've been using literature, leadership training, love in action, submissions to parliament, radio programs, life chains, producing lots of literature, sometimes sidewalk counseling outside a place that we knew to be abortion mills even before it was legalized, and making a stand in, in every way that we could, which included running biblical worldview seminars, uh, speaking at assemblies, going to schools, True Love Waits, um, a range of different things. So mm. um, knowing that the battle is, first of all, a battle for the mind. It's it's uh, information battle. It's also a battle for the heart. And so there's such an importance in intercession. But there's also the legislative battles, mm. everything from municipal all the way through to provincial and national so uh, we've been involved seeing that education is one of the goals, education leading to enlistment and uh, encouragement to empower people to be more effective. We want to motivate and we want to mobilize. We want to inform, inspire, and involve people in making a difference, putting feet on the streets, really. So um, it's been a long battle. And uh, 25 years ago, Nelson Mandela's president, South Africa, signed the abortion legislation into law without any real support on the ground. Hmm. This is just done to appease an overseas agenda. Hmm. So what we saw was uh, this was an imported agenda. The people of South Africa were overwhelmingly like 98% of submissions to government on this issue to the health department was to keep the laws against abortion and hmm. to protect pre-born babies. But they had another agenda. They just went through the charade of pretending to listen to submissions from the public. Hmm. They had the intention, and this probably was written by the WHO in Geneva or by the UN up in New York, but it doesn't really have South African fingerprints on this legislation. Well, so it wasn't actually a push from the people. This actually came from the top down to legalize abortion in South Africa, which Very has much. led to the murder of millions of babies now in South Africa today. And that's really a sad thing. And this is a battle for information, for one. But ultimately, I think when you get on the ground, you see that it's also a battle for the heart. It's a battle against really people wanting to do what their sinful desires, uh, what they want to do in their sinful desires. This reminds me of Acts 3, where uh, the Apostle Peter 
calls the people to repentance and he says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that's truly what we want to see. We want a repentance, people turning away, that refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, but that only comes as we turn away from evil. So Dr. Hammond, um, what has been done to protest this scandalous situation? I know you mentioned the things that Africa Christian Action has been doing, um, but is there anything else that's really been done by the church or by anyone else to actually yes. push back against this? Well, back in 1990s, before the legalization of abortion, numerous church denominations gave submissions. There was huge petitions, massive petitions being given. And virtually every significant denomination in the country came out with their submissions against the legalization of abortion in South Africa. I was at the hearings uh, sitting uh, there where Cyril Ramposa was then the chairman of the Constitutional Assembly. Uh, before he became president uh, in these latter days. But uh, we know that the vast majority of the submissions, even by their own estimation, which was in 96%, uh, were pro-life uh, submissions. And we could see whole denominations keep the laws opposing abortion in hmm. place. And I was sitting in there for other presentations, and some denominations asked me to even give their presentations for them. And... Uh, so I got in there many a time, and there's no doubt there was a lot of protest beforehand. The trouble is I think many churches gave up when, when it was legalized. It was, oh, mm, no, we've lost the battle. And the thing that's different in South Africa is in most countries in the world, the pro-life movement started after the legalization of abortion. In South Africa, we might be one of the few countries in the world where the pro-life movement was strong before the legalization of abortion. Mm. It's not that this government legalized abortion not knowing the biological facts, hmm. that life begins at conception, that at three weeks after conception, the baby's heartbeat can be measured. At six weeks after conception, the baby's brainwave can be measured. We all know that the absence of a heartbeat is a sign of death. Hmm. Why is the presence of a heartbeat not a sign of life? And we know that the absence of brainwave is pretty much confirmation of death. Well, why is the presence of a brainwave not confirmation of life? And so there's there's a lot of logic, there's a lot of biology 101, a lot of we had medical professionals, gynecologists, scientists, lecturers at university coming there and giving submissions as uh, showing the pictures, the development, ultrasound. There's no question that this government, at least the 50 odd people that were in the health portfolio committee drafting this legislation, they knew uh, mm. The facts, and they knew that life begins at conception. I mean, there was no doubt about it. And so, this might be one of the few governments in the world where they legalized abortion after all the facts were presented to them. Some countries might say, you know, we didn't know. That's before all ultrasound technology. But the ANC government in this country can't say that. They, they knew. And uh, the discouraging thing from our point of view is that while many Christians and many church denominations and pastors spoke up against it before the legalization of abortion, we've seen very few making a stand since it was legalized. It's almost mm -hmm. like, oh, well, now it's law, so there's nothing you can do about it. Whereas they're ignoring the fact that in many countries where where abortion was legalized, like just take Poland, uh, for example, you can, mm -hmm. and Zambia, you, you can rescind it through pro-life action and civic involvement. But um, sadly, most are not getting involved these days in the fight even though they did make the voices known before the legalization of abortion. Hmm. And I think the difference in Africa too is there's a bit more of a, a culture of the people have a fear of God. There's a belief in God. There's sort of a 
religious and Christian ethos within the people already, whereas in the States there's more of sort of the secularism, atheism. So there already is sort of respect for God, respect for life, things like that, even in the culture as you're talking to people here on the ground. And then in that context to have this legalized is very very different than the context in the States where there's a lot more secularism. Yes, well, just take the fact that in the continent of Africa, 55 countries, only two countries in Africa have legalized abortion, Tunisia in the far north, South Africa in the far south. The rest of Africa has laws against abortion. And you know that just a few years ago, the United Nations tried to have a colossal conference. There were something like 5,000 or more delegates where they, they flew them in and put them in five-star hotels trying to promote the agenda for legalizing abortion in, in Africa. Total failure. Um, because the, the hmm. president of Kenya came to open it, which was, of course, customary, the president of the host country. And he was well informed ahead of time. <laughs> by the pro-life movement. He gave a powerful pro-life message and uh, it, it completely bust up the whole UN agenda because all the, the delegates from all over Africa fully resonated with his message. You know, that abortion is un-African, abortion is un-Christian, abortion is against the family, this is not our culture, uh, we will never tolerate it. And uh, hmm. so uh, the whole thing, the UN paid who knows how many tens of millions of dollars to put together this conference that in the end did more to advance the pro-life cause than the pro-abortion cause. <laughs> and uh, it, it just shows throughout Africa there's huge resistance to legalized abortion. But it was pushed through here under the cover of liberation and uh, mm. not that it exactly liberates the poor babies. And yeah. so um, in South Africa, and for some reason Tunisia, which I think is one of the more secular Muslim countries in, in the world, uh, they pushed through abortion. But the rest of Africa, no. So this is against the whole thrust of, of African ethos. In Africa, babies are seen as a blessing. Hmm. Large families are seen as something good. Hmm. And uh, it's not seen as a burden like so many other countries yet, the secular view. So the fact that we've got legalized abortion in South Africa is, is an aberration. It, it does not fit with the African context. And everyone knows that the vast majority of the population in Africa are against uh, abortion. Uh, so, for example, during the Health Portfolio Committee submissions, I at one point challenged the ANC uh, delegates when they were saying, well, we've got a mandate from the people. We've just got the majority in the last election. I said, you never ran on a platform of legalized abortion. You don't have a mandate for that. And if you doubt it, go to the population with the referendum. And this one MP, Member of Parliament for the ANC, said, we can't have a referendum on this issue. The vast majority of the electorate are illiterate and uneducated. <laughs> and I said, Madam, it's those very people who just voted for you. Don't you trust their judgment? <laughs> and uh, I mean, this is the this is the attitude. And you know, we can't go to the electorate for for a referendum mm. because they don't know as well as we do. We know what's best. So, and then they claim to be Democrats. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty sad situation. It shows just the. Uh, corruption within politics, I think, to say the very least. So that's what we've been marching against this last week is the legalization of abortion in South Africa. But we received some harassment or pushback from the police uh, during this time. Uh, maybe first you could share with us, has anything like this ever happened before where the police sort of came to sort of push back against the marches for life to parliament. Well, this is pretty unprecedented because, you know, for 25 years on the anniversary of the legalization of abortion, the 1st of, of January, we've 
1st of February every year since 1997, we've marched to Poland. It's the March for Life to march to Poland. It takes the form of a funeral procession. We have a hearse hired to go in front. We have marchers dressed in black and carrying little crosses, little coffins, um, flowers, banners, posters, and it's a very visual protest demonstration in the lines of Ezekiel and Jeremiah of publicly demonstrating to mm. people, you know, life begins at conception, abortion is murder. And, and generally speaking, we've had very good relations with the police. And the only time we ever had any really South African police as opposed to traffic police presence was the very first time. And, well, I suppose they didn't know what to expect. So uh, <laughs> 1st of February, 1998, on the first anniversary of legalization of abortion, we marched to Poland. And as we approached Poland, it was ridiculous. I just you know, couldn't believe what we were seeing. There were armored cars lined up in front of the parliamentary gates and it was rows of riot police in their riot police full shoulder pads and helmets and face shields and with these massive shields like these Roman type oh uh, rectangular shields here in two layers. <laughs> is, is there somebody else marching today? I mean, uh, they're doing this for pro-lifers. And, you know, we were chuckling away. Well, we went and we, we gathered to the side of Pond. We start singing hymns and prayers. And you could see these right police visibly relax and start to sort of disperse a bit. They, I think they felt a little foolish. And afterwards we had some chats with them. So that was one time they didn't do their research very well. Um, I mean, what do they think pro-lifers are going to do, throw yeah. petrol bombs? So, um, you know, they never even turned up after that. So mm. for the last 24 years, we have not seen South African police as a as opposed to traffic police turning up. The traffic police, uh, I don't know if every country's got the same, but we've got a distinct difference between our, our police to deal with crimes and our traffic mm -hmm. police to deal with misdemeanors, traffic offences. So we normally have traffic police escorting us just to help us cross the traffic intersections and to ensure we don't block too much traffic and to ensure the traffic doesn't endanger us. So, you know, we appreciate the traffic police have a legitimate concern, but we've never had the SAPS escort us before. They they were just at one time at Parliament when they obviously didn't quite know how pro-lifers would behave, and now they do. Mm. Um, you know, she, um, but no, this, this year was completely unprecedented that they were actually mm. from the beginning and harassing us from beginning to end. Mm. So what exactly took place? Maybe you can share with the audience what happened with the police pushback this yes, year. Yes, so uh, immediately I had uh, several of these policemen from a captain uh, and several other officers uh, coming to me in a very aggressive uh, sort of uh, accusatory manner and uh, wanting to know who's the convener of the march and uh, do I realize that I'm personally financially liable for any damage that my marches may uh, may cause? And I said, we're pro-lifers. We've never thrown anything. We don't break anything. We don't even leave litter. In fact, we, we bring plastic bags and gloves and and brooms, and we clean up at the venue where we're gathering, uh, pick up the litter, and we leave the place much cleaner than we found it. And, uh, you know, listen to me, and uh, I'm giving instructions, you know, don't talk back. And she talked about civil servants, and there was this aggression and uh, demanding. Uh, he wanted to uh, have my, my permission slip. Well, as it so happens, the Southern Constitution guarantees you the right to demonstrate. And while it's advisable to inform the city of Cape Town for traffic purposes, mm. you don't actually have to ask for permission. According to the South African Constitution, you have a guaranteed right to demonstrate. And uh, But nevertheless, I, you know, we had informed city of Cape Town. We had their reply back. And so Hanson said, didn't you get a copy of this? Well, of course he must have. But then he starts reading off all the 
ridiculous, obviously, yes, we understand type of regulations. And, you know, know, don't interrupt. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm giving you the instruction. And again, this sort of agro, agro, agro. And then, where's your masks? And, well, according to South African legislation on protests, 1996, no demonstrator is allowed to wear any face covering whatsoever during any protesting. No, but that's that's been abolished. It can't be. Parliament hasn't met for the last two years. <laughs> uh, so Parliament could not have abolished a law. Now, the fact that they've brought in some rules, which don't have the weight of Parliament behind it, because mm. Parliament was suspended the last 20 months, they've got some rules that say you've got to wear masks. Uh, but in fact, we still have a law that says if you're in demonstration, you must not wear a mask. And as it so happens, we've had multiple cases that have come to court where high courts have determined this mask mandate is completely unconstitutional. Hmm. Uh, quite a sign the fact that we've got all the scientists now saying, actually, it never helped and, you know, it's actually more harmful than good. Um, and we know this. This is now out there. It's uh, even, even the Center for Disease Control is admitting that the masks have made no difference. It hasn't slowed down the virus, but it has made a lot of people sicker. So uh, quite a sentiment not helping. It's it's actually hindering health, considering your first requirement is, is fresh air, oxygen. Mm. Uh, nevertheless, I didn't have a chance, of course, to mention almost any of this because this, the man was so irritable and such a bad mood and in no uh, willingness to hear a word that we said. So, you know, I barely got through any sentence without being interrupted by him. But nevertheless, so, you know, kept demanding masks, 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 and, you know, going to forbid this mask, going to stop this, going to arrest you and threatening. When my daughter, Daniela, arrived and uh, said, where's your mask? She said, I don't have a mask. And he started to threaten her with arrest and all this. Just the aggression, Hmm. absolutely unprecedented. Never seen anything like it any of our marches before. And when he repeated for the third time that I'm financially liable for any damage that will be done, I said, you mean like you hold the EFF responsible for all the looting and burning and destruction that they cause? You know, that's not the point. Well, actually it is. <laughs> if if, if March, and I think marchers should be responsible for any damage they cause. Mm. Of course, you know, we believe in restitution and personal responsibility. And uh, I think that's completely reasonable. And we would never dream of so much as throwing literature, let alone rocks. Mm. So we don't do that. We're pro-lifers, what they think we do. But anyway, <laughs> this was the kind of way it was. But they surround us. In fact, any photograph, if a person goes on the christianaction.org.za website and sees the pictures, it's hard to get a picture of our marches without getting a picture of the police around. Yeah. In some sections, <laughs> it looks like they outnumber us. And it was, and they were all around us on all four sides. And it was, it's kind of strange with, SAPS vehicles in front, SAPS vehicles mm. behind, plus traffic police in addition. And it, it looks a bit excessive. I would have thought that there's a lot of real crime they've got to deal with. But even while we're doing the presentations and having our prayer vigil, solemn assembly, prayers of repentance at Parliament, this police captain kept harassing him. Remember, you've got to be finished by two. Like, <laughs> we, were, we were finished by five to two. But anyway, but he kept harassing us uh, before, uh, during it. And to interrupt a service, just the rudeness of this. And uh, they were hanging around the whole time. Now, most of our marches have been done without any police presence, aside from the traffic police. And I've even had a couple of marches to point where the traffic police didn't turn up and we just negotiate traffic on our own. And it wasn't ideal, but mm. um, we've always followed the route. We've obeyed the rules. We... Respect property. I mean, what do they expect? Hmm. So this this was pretty strange. And um, uh, considering that 
And I said to them, we've been conducting these marches for 25 years and Africa's Action has been busy for 30 years and we've got a good track record. Uh, but generally, I found police always friendly. We've normally had such a good relationship, I could only conclude that some politician had, or politicians, had ordered these police to arrest us because it was so out of character, it was so unnecessary and it was such an overreaction. Hmm. Well, the one thing that someone pointed out is the good thing is uh, they added a couple more marchers to our march to parliament. So that was nice. We Significantly, did. yes. And you got a bit more uh, attention because people are thinking, oh, whoa, there's uh, police here. What, what's going on? So everyone's heads were turned. <laughs> it's true. Quite yeah. aside from the blue lights and extra vehicles. Yeah, exactly. And, no, it, it, it's true. They, they actually enhanced the march, even though yeah. <laughs> that might not have been the intention. <laughs> it drew more attention, if anything. So would you consider it to have been a success this year? Well, March to Parliament? yes and no. Uh, it's a success in that it's the first time since this official lockdown that we've been able to march despite a lockdown level one. Last year, uh, on the anniversary, we were expressly forbidden. In fact, no one was allowed to march because they were on level three. They were really extreme and uh, they didn't allow any, any kind of activity. So what we did last year was we did Stands for Life, hmm. where we mobilized uh, in South Africa, according to South African law, anything... 15 and under is not a demonstration. So when you're over 15 people, that can be classed as demonstration. So mm. what we did is we organized eight separate teams, all under 15 people, to gather different traffic lights, busy intersections, with banners, posters, flags, and just reading lots of literature. And to be honest, we just read thousands more leaflets in the Stand for Life last year um, mm. at these different sections than we ever could have done in just a march. We might have reached more people for all I know. So the Stands for Life were quite successful. We did a very nice video. Uh, one of our people in the MISO did a good video, Stand for Life, which was really good. And um, we did the best we could under the circumstances restrictions. So the fact that we actually succeeded, even with these limitations and harassments, to do a march to Parliament and have a prayer vigil outside Parliament um, under still lockdown regulations makes it a success. But on the other hand, it was our smallest turnout ever, um, we had probably around 60-odd people, which hmm. is, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, it was a lot more than that, you know, much more than double that would have turned out. And we know it's a work day. We know that a lot of people are afraid because of all the paranoia and propaganda and pandemic panic. Um, and we know that for many people it's difficult and cost of petrol skyrockets it and hmm. transport. But still... Well, I would say it's a success in that we did it. I was disappointed that there weren't more churches and uh, that there wasn't more involvement from the wider community. It should have been bigger and better than it was. So in one sense, we can say it was something of a success, but I don't think it was as good as it should be. Bearing in mind that this year was the 25th anniversary of the legalization of abortion in South Africa. Now, we did at least eight different African Action emailings, different articles promoting the need, including the leading cause of death in the world today and a modern equivalent of a child sacrifice and a conversation with abortionists, a whole lot of key things, abortionist murder. And uh, we had a lot of radio programs on numbers of different radio stations hmm. in preparation. And there was, there was a lot of work that was done over the last few months to mobilize. So uh, I invited leaders of all different political parties that are pro-life to come. Not one representative of a political party turned up at Pont, which is unusual. We normally have several. Mm. 
uh, despite it being an annual event and this being the 25th anniversary. I mean, a quarter century, it's, it's a milestone. Yeah, it's an important so, time. So I, I think it's for in the light of churches and political parties that are pro-life, I think it was a disappointing turnout. Um, for Africa Christian Action against the odds to have still managed to pull it off, um, it's something of a success, but I don't think we should be satisfied with it. Mm. And we've already discussed a little bit how abortion was legalized in South Africa um, when Nelson Mandela came to office. Was there a bit more you wanted to say about that issue? Yes, I, th I think it, it was a really a con game because while the majority of submissions to the Health Committee, Health P Portfolio Committee at Parliament uh, during the Constitutional Convention was pro-life, uh, the news media was overwhelmingly pro-abortion, or mm. as they say, pro-choice. And I was once having a discussion with a journalist from the Argus, and in fact, um, she had set up the interview to find out about my work in Sudan, and um, we'd been bombed there, and uh, the destruction of churches that we'd been... So I gave um, a, a long interview, and at the end, I must say, a very good article came out in the Argus, which was quite unusual. We don't normally get good articles. Um, on our work amongst the persecuted church, but Sudan was in the news and, and it just seemed to fit. So at the end of the interview, I said, have you asked all your questions? Yes. And I said, may I ask you a question? She said, certainly. I said, why is it that the Argus never prints pro-life articles? I said, we have demonstrations, large demonstrations, big marches. In fact, we had just recently, before that, had a march of 10,000, another 30,000 uh, to Parliament, uh, you know, standing for the right to life and protesting against uh, attempts to legalize perversion and pornography and abortion. So I said, why is it that you ignore these events and that you can have uh, two homosexuals and a dog and that gets an, a major front page coverage, but you can hmm. have thousands of Christians and pro-lifers and it's, it's, it's a non-event. I thought you meant to be without fear or favor, all the news that's fit to print. And the response was, well, we're pro-choice. I said, no, I understand that, but surely as a <laughs> journalist you want to give all sides. And she says, well, the editor's pro-choice. Everyone on the newspaper's pro-choice, I'm pro-choice. And then she smiled and said, I guess we're just biased. <laughs> Which actually is a very surprisingly honest answer. Yeah. <laughs> but that was the problem. In the run-up to legalization of abortion in South Africa, we had a lot of debates, a lot of actions, a lot of protests, a lot of literature distribution. And there's no doubt that on the ground – that general sentiment, South Africa, was pro-life. But only the pro-choice position came through in the media. And it was, it was so obvious. It was so blatant. And I think that swayed a lot of things so that maybe the powers that be thought they could get away with this, even mm. though the vast majority of people on the ground had a pro-life sentiment and they pushed through one of the most radical pro-abortion legislations anywhere in the world, certainly one of the most radical in Africa. I mean, basically, you can abort a baby for any reason, hmm. right up to full term, because there's, there's no actual penalties for even um, going uh, into second and third term abortions. In fact, I don't know of anyone who's been prosecuted in this country for any abortions whatsoever, and there's a lot of backstreet abortions still taking place. So hmm. uh, the legislation is, is shocking, but we have had pro-life doctors and nurses um, basically denied promotion or denied even a graduation and being fired or suspended without pay for years um, as a result of pro-life conviction. So the, the, the law in this country is pretty bad, but we need to remember that it was never done through referendum. It was never done openly through legality. And even the sham of these hearings 
they ignored over 90-something percent of the submissions which were mm. pro-life. So I think we need to recognize, just like America's recently had a good film come out called Roe v. Wade, which exposes the deceit and the dishonesty and the backstabbing involved in coming out to this unprecedented legislation where the Supreme Court in Washington overruled the local state's laws, such as in Texas, mm. as far as abortion goes. And it does look like sentiments um, moving in the direction that the Supreme Court may soon reverse this because Roe v. Wade's been a travesty. Well over 63 million babies have been killed in America through abortion mm. since 1973, which is an absolutely horrific. That's more than a population of South Africa in total has mm. died in America alone wow. from abortion since 1973. And so uh, when, when you look at it, you can see not only in South Africa and America, and I'm sure many other countries in the world, the legislation was brought in deceptively. It mm. was not done through a normal, democratic, open, informed consent type of legislation. Mm. And you said how many of the churches opposed this before it came into legislation, but once it did legislation, there was sort of a pulling back and not actually engaging and saying, okay, now we're going to stand because now there's even more of a battle. Um, has there has there been much of uh, action taking place from the churches to continue preventing this? Well, and w what's the situation that we find ourselves in today? Tragically, I find that most of the churches made their stands before the legalization portion. And in fact, our biggest turnouts for all of our marches, marches, parliament, life change, we had phenomenal turnouts before 1st of February 1997. And afterwards, it just dwindled. And the difference is beforehand, we'd have pastors mobilizing the entire congregations, church buses, trains, everything else, just bringing their people in to make a stand for life or to march parliament with us. Mm. We used to have such full involvement, but I haven't seen anything vaguely remotely connected to that since. So this is really bizarre. And you wonder, what is the, the situation that... They know it's wrong because they opposed it before it was legalized. But why this reticence to oppose it after it's legalized? Mm. We, we, we know that just because man makes it a law doesn't change the fact that God's law doesn't change. On the day of judgment, we are not going to be judged according to what our country's constitutional laws were. We're going to be mm. judged according to God's law. Mm. I mean, There's a higher law we're in submission to. Definitely. So yeah. you can imagine on the day of judgment, it won't be, oh, the United Nations <laughs> Charter said, that, okay, well, then we'll let, no, uh, there's one God, and he's the eternal judge. Mm. He's the creator, and he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And on day of judgment, there's only one vote that's really going to count, and that's God's. Mm. Absolutely. And that's what we're trying to call people to is to live in light of the law of God, which says abortion is murder. I mean, killing a baby, whether they're inside the womb, outside the womb, it's still murder. There's really no difference between the baby in the womb and the baby out of the womb. And that's the pro-life cause has done a lot for sort of exposing the hypocrisy, if you will. Oh, well, is it the size of the baby? Is it the dependency on the mother? Uh, is it the level of development? Is the environment? Well, you can apply all those things to a six-month-old baby and it doesn't make it legitimate to kill that baby. Oh, well, this baby's going to grow up and have a rough life. Oh, so you can kill the six-month-old, right? <laughs> oh, this baby's very dependent on its mother. Yeah, like if it's if the mother doesn't feed it, it'll die, right? So we can just kill that baby, right? Well, it shows really the argumentation is so hypocritical when it comes down to it. It is. In fact, I heard all the arguments uh, back in 1995 and 1996 in Parliament going in there during these submissions. We were there often. In fact, it was quite a... Uh, exciting, heady time. A lot of the people in the country were enthusiastic because 
they got the impression that we are all going to be involved in helping to draft the laws and the constitution of this country. And so it was a huge amount of involvement and, and enthusiasm, which is why we could probably march so many people to Parliament at different points, because uh, they were told this is when we, the people, get to craft a hmm. constitution. And little did they know it had already been written and by people outside this country before we know, um, hmm. because sure doesn't reflect any of the submissions given. But during this, I had this one ANC member of Parliament saying, but what about the street children? And I said, well, are you proposing killing them? No, no, but uh, we need abortion because... I said, well, what's the difference if you want to kill them before they're born or after they're born? It's still, you want to kill them. You're saying they don't have the right to live. And uh, then it was, you know, about all the the uh, poor and, and disadvantaged and this is all to justify abortion. And at one point, I, I probably overstated my case, but I got a bit frustrated and irritated with these arrogant Ugh. politicians speaking about life so in such a cavalier fashion. Hmm. I said, I know that you can be very generous with taxpayers' money, other people's money, but what have any of you actually personally ever done to help a poor and disadvantaged person? I said, I have been in refugee camps I have, of people pouring over the border from Mozambique and Angola. I have carried the refuse of society, the victims of your laws that you pass here, who passed out in the gutter with them vomiting down my back, carrying them to a place where they can be cleaned and washed and given a clean bed and food to eat. Uh, what have any of you actually ever done to help the poor? And as I said it, my heart leapt and I thought, you've overstayed your case because there's 50 people in here. I mean, if just one person has something, <laughs> your, your story's fallen flat. And as I stopped, I looked around. Not an eye met mine. Every eye was down. People were scratching the back of their necks. They were shuffling a feet. They were doodling on the paper. There was total silence. It was, it was staggering. I thought, what, 50 members of parliament and none of them have got something to say? Hmm. I mean, I just challenged them directly, basically call them all hypocrites and, and heartless at that. <laughs> and, and it was total silence. I thought, this is incredible. But we know that many politicians are very generous with other people's money, but they don't put their own mm. money into it. And there's a story told that back in days when Davy Crockett was actually a member of the House of Representatives in the United States, that he spoke against voting public money for something and said, we don't have the right to do that. But he said, you all know that I'm the poorest man here. But he put his coonskin hat down. He says, uh, I'm going to put, forget how many dollars in here, and I challenge the rest of you to, to do the same. And uh, at the end of the day, Nobody else had added anything else. That they were all willing to vote thousands of dollars of someone else's money, but they weren't willing to put one dollar of their own money mm. uh, to this cause <laughs> that they claimed they felt so strongly about. And, I mean, that's, that's legendary now, but that's a true story from Davy Crockett. And you just wonder, if you challenge members of parliament on, on something like this, well, I actually did, and I was shocked by the response. I mean, imagine that. Mm. They all say they care about the, the poor, unwanted, and so on, but... Um, when asked, what have you ever done? There was no response. <laughs> no. Which reminds one of this, this uh, parable of the Good Samaritan where a uh, man stood up at church and said, do you know the parable of the Good Samaritan is so relevant for today? Why, just this week, I was on my way to a luncheon engagement and there was a man lying, bleeding in the gutter and people were walking by on both sides of the road and nobody was doing anything. Nobody was stopping. Nobody helped him. And then he said, with rising indignation. And do you know, when I came back from lunch an hour later, he was still there. No one had helped him. <laughs> and this is the thing. So often we can say, why doesn't somebody do something about this? But what we should be asking is, what can I do about this? Mm. 
And I think that's a very prevalent question because I think we get a lot of pushback actually from Christians when we do these marches for life or when we do a peaceful protest trying to raise awareness that actually babies are being killed in our cities. They're being killed by quote unquote healthcare professionals that are being hired to murder the most helpless members of our society. And yet we have a lot of Christians who at least I've experienced, there's quite a few Christians who say, oh, but that's too judgmental. How can you do that? Rather, we should just be out counseling the mothers and those who are going into the abortion clinics. Do you think there's room for that sort of dichotomy or how would you respond to someone who it's poses not, that? Of, it's not a matter of either or, it's both and. Exactly. And so one of the top leaders of Africa Christian Action, early phases, Miriam Kane, who's a nursing sister, she wrote the book Fight for Life and uh, uh, Make a Difference, Handbook for Christian Action in South Africa. Well, since leaving ACA, she's been running SA Cares for Life, which is an adoption agency, uh, specially caring for uh, children who've been abandoned and for HIV babies and organizing adoptions. So uh, this is always our concern. We've always been supporting the crisis pregnancy centers, the unmet mothers' homes, uh, the um, various adoption agencies, and and actually raising, often at a life change, people will be bringing baby things to donate to, go to those who are adopting babies in crisis care centers. So it's a matter of both. And many of our pro-lifers who march are also the ones who are doing the sidewalk counseling. Hmm. In fact, the ones who are the most reliable are the, the people involved in the Adwin mothers' homes and, and the crisis pregnancy centers. So, no, I, I don't ever think it's a matter of either or. It's, it's always both. And we must speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. We must hold back those staggering towards slaughter. We need to uh, love the mother and love the child. I mean, there are two patients here, and no doctor uh, in dealing with a pregnant mother thinks in terms of just one patient. There's two patients. Mm. And, of course, you do your best to save and serve both. And sometimes it may be beyond medical science to be able to save both, but no doctor should willingly do harm to any one of his patients. Mm. So those listening, what can they do to resist this culture of death? And is there hope that this legislation can be pushed back to protect babies? Yes. Well, let's just start with the last first, the, the hope, because many people think, well, you know, once it's legalized, there's nothing you can do about it, which isn't true. In fact, right from the very beginning of the Christian church, th there was such a child-killing culture in Rome. In Rome, you could abandon your children. In fact, the term throwing them to the wolves comes from the Roman empire's practice of abandoning unwanted babies to the wolves, even at designated areas where you could abandon unwanted babies outside the city walls where it was illegal to rescue them. And so hmm. Christians broke the law to rescue babies. And they said the early church grew almost as much from adoption as they did from, from evangelism because hmm. they adopted so many of these abandoned children, which was quite common to abandon their children to the wolves, which is strange considering Rome was built according to their own legends and history by Romulus and Remus, who were abandoned by their mother, twins, who were raised by wolves. And hmm. so, you know, to think that that people who believed that the city was built by people who were raised by wolves, uh, who had more maternal instinct apparently than the mothers, and it's that's not just a legend. It's not just a jungle book. People have been found in India and other places who have been abandoned by their mothers, raised by wolves. So hmm. it, it has actually happened. And um, uh, that that's what the Jungle Book's even based on, the actual case. Where, where they found a 12-year-old and so on, uh, who, who up till then had only been raised by wolves. So uh, right from the start, the church has always been pro-life, adopting babies and also 
campaigning against abortion and child killing and infanticide. In fact, uh, in India, um, Amy Carmichael and in uh, China, uh, the many missionaries there have continually been fighting against the culture of uh, throwing away children and uh, especially the one-child policy and, and uh, abandoning female babies in China and all of that. So this is just Christian to, to care for life. And legislation has been over the years changed to make everything from slavery illegal, uh, infanticide, abandonment of babies, uh, all the way through gladiatorial sports. I mean, so many things have been changed over the years. So the fact that something's law doesn't mean it has to stay that way. And just in our lifetime. I've seen countries like Zambia and Poland, which used to have legalized abortion, abolish that and now have pro-life legislation. There's no reason to assume that things can only go in a negative direction. And we're seeing even right now in America, some mm. states like Texas bring out the heartbeat law that you cannot abort a baby where heartbeat can be detected. Mm. And considering that from three weeks after conception, the baby's heartbeat's detected. And most mothers don't even know they're pregnant at that point in three weeks. Anyway, it basically means that all abortions are illegal in Texas and mm. pro-aborts are going berserk because also it is reminding people that every abortion stops a beating heart. Mm. And, I mean, that's just a medical fact. So, yes, we can win this, and I know that this is a winnable war, uh, but what can we do? We must be informed. My people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. We need to be interceding. I mean, this is spiritual warfare, and we need to be involved. We can all do something. And whether it's just having pro-life bumper stickers, pro-life T-shirts, pro-life precious feet lapel pins, um, and there's a whole range of different uh, ways of communicating pro-life messages on social media. We put out obituaries in memory of the babies, uh, which you can see on Africa Christian Action Facebook page. And uh, every year we're making a stand, but it's, it's joining in the life chains, joining in the marches for life, sidewalk counseling, there's a lot we can do on education, information, literature dissemination, social media activities, sharing messages on audio platforms like this one. Uh, there's there's much that we can do. But, of course, one thing that's super important is vote pro-life. Don't waste your vote on mm. a pro-abortion party. As pro-life people, we should uh, only support those parties that stand for the most basic right of all, which is the right to life of people and babies. If you can't get that right – it's hard to imagine any of the other laws are going to be right. I mean, mm. this is pretty foundational. So uh, being informed, being interceding, being involved. Mm. Absolutely. So we hope this has been helpful for you as you th we think about the pro-life issue and really standing up for the rights of those who cannot stand for themselves. What we can do to get involved to push back this culture of death that we find ourselves in all throughout the world. There's such a push for this to, to murder innocent babies and millions of babies being killed. And we wonder if there'd be less apathy if this was happening outside the womb. If these were little newborn babies being killed, how would the church respond? And how much more ought we to reach out with compassion, be moved to action because of this great evil that we have in our countries today. Dr. Hammond, any final closing thoughts for us? Yes, it's so important that we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. I mean, that's the, that's the heart of the matter. Love God and love God's people. And the Lord said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And uh, there we have it. We to love our neighbor, and that includes our unseen pre-born neighbor. Mm. Proverbs 24 says, If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn towards death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Surely we do not know this, 
Does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? May you make a stand for life. Thank you for this opportunity to share with you. Good night and God bless.